Our Heavenly Father, we pray what we don't know, please teach us. Especially teach us what we think we know, but really don't. Send your word out to each of us in power, to your glory, and for our good, and for the blessing and help and sanctification and purification of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. See it, say it, sorted. Alistair Begg told about seeing this in England uh, at the subway. A sign saying, see it, say it, sorted. Now to understand that, you have to understand that in England, sorted, sort, they use that to mean to fix something, to get everything in place, to get everything all arranged and where it should be. So what they're saying, to put it in more American English, is if you see something, then tell an official and it'll get taken care of. And this is what they have to do in these dangerous times. They, uh, a purse or a backpack sitting somewhere or a person out of place or acting oddly may not be as innocent as we might assume. And so what they're saying is everybody now needs to keep his eyes open. Everybody needs to take responsibility. And if something comes up, then tell a policeman or tell somebody who works for their subway system. Well, that applies to the church as well, as Matthew 18 has been showing us. So God says to each of us, see it, say it, sort it. As we walk together through this dark battleground with the devil and the world on the outside and the flesh always tugging at our sleeve at the inside, we're really not safe until we see Jesus face to face. And so there's a role for each of us in the kingdom community, the community of citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what we are. It takes all of us exercising constant care, constant vigilance, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And Jesus has been showing us step by step how he wants us to do that. He wants us to watch over ourselves. He wants us to watch over each other. I need to guard myself from straying. I need to watch out for my brothers and sisters in case they happen to be straying as well. And so uh, we've seen the first few steps. Step zero, you might say, is I need to watch myself. Step one is if I see a, a brother or sister in sin, I go and speak to that person alone. Step two, I take a witness or two and talk to that person. But what if the person doesn't listen? If he doesn't listen to me, I take two witnesses or one witness. But what if he doesn't listen to the two or three of us? What, do, what are we supposed to do then? This is what Jesus teaches us about today. The next steps. So Roman numeral one, the next step is church confrontation. Jesus says briefly and uh, concisely, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. Them being the original person plus a witness or two. Tell the church. Now, this sin we've been talking about, that's the premise. Verse 15, when a brother sins, that we're to, that's what we're talking about. And this is a sin that is causing significant harm or has the potential to cause significant harm to himself or to the church. In context, it's a sin of straying. Like the sheep that has wandered from the flock that Jesus talks about. This person is straying significantly. Or it's the sin of a, of a trip stick, a trap stick, a stumbling block. Something that will cause himself or will call, uh, cause others significant harm in their walk with God. That's what we're talking about. I cast it, when we talked about it, I cast it in, in three generalities in the the doctrinal area, the practical area, or the social area. 
And I said that it's, it's good to use the Ten Commandments as sort of a rule of thumb. And areas touched on by the Ten Commandments are a good rule of thumb. Sins of doctrine, if somebody's getting off fundamentally in his understanding of the gospel or of who God is, who the Holy Spirit or the Son of God is, of what the Christian life is, of what the Bible is, of, of, of different doctrinal areas, then that's this sort of thing. Or practical areas, somebody's fallen into drunkenness or into theft or use of drugs or a sexual immorality. Or social issues, somebody is going around causing division, division and uh, backbiting, backstabbing, uh, causing and, 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 and multiplying uh, discontentment and bitterness and slander and separating friends ceasing to attend church, different things like this. These are the significant sorts of sins we're talking about. But they are sins as defined by the Word of God. We saw and stressed that point. It's not a matter of differing opinion or differing judgment. It's not that somebody isn't dressing the way I think he should or listening to the kind of music that I think he should or driving the kind of car I think he should or whatever. It's not one of those things. In, in areas like that, we're absolutely free to talk to each other in a humble, brotherly way, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a sin, and sin is defined only in one way, and that's by the Word of God. Sin is either a refusal to obey or a refusal to, uh, it is ignoring the word of God or breaking the word of God. All of God's word comes with God's authority, whether in areas of instructing us how to think about things or how to respond to things, what to do with our time and our resources. Everything in the word of God has the authority of God. And sin is when either I refuse to respond or I respond in a rebellious way to what God's word says. So that's the problem then. What's the practice? Well, we remind ourselves of what comes before. Number one in your outline, what comes before, uh, I guess I could call steps zero, one, and two. Uh, step zero is that I'm supposed to watch over myself. Jesus says, if you have a stumbling block in your heart, if it's your eye or your arm or whatever, then you get rid of it. You keep watch over yourself. Step one is if I see a sin in a brother or sister, then I go individually, privately, and I talk with that person. I, Jesus says I reprove, I confront, I re, uh, re admonish that person about his sin. Uh, and then step two, if the person does not listen, if the person listens, then I've won my brother, that straying sheep is brought back, and, uh, you know, confetti and, and puppies and butterflies. Everything's great. Everything's as it should be. That's the goal, restoration of this straying brother. But if he doesn't listen, then Jesus says, you don't drop it there. You go back with a witness, maybe two witnesses, and you do the same exact thing. In, in the private audience, you confront the brother and you reprove him for his sin and call on him to repent. Well, what do we do then? At some point along here, it's wise to involve uh, the elder or elders of a church. If, if the church has one, if a church has several, it's, it's a good time to involve one or several. In fact, here's what our Constitution says. If the erring individual still refuses to heed this warning, then it shall be brought to the attention of the Board of Elders, whether that's one person or many. If the Board of Elders, listen, determines after thorough investigation that there is corroborating evidence that the erring individual has sinned or is continuing to sin, then that person has been appropriately confronted and that that person has refused to repent, then the elders shall inform the church. 
No, I just want to tap that after thorough investigation. And I want to remind you that the Bible is equally zealous about injustice and about protecting the falsely accused. The Bible is all about coming down on the heads of those who harm other people, but it is also about coming down on the heads of those who harm other people by falsely accusing. Now, we live in a day where I, I, when I was a kid, and let me tell you a little old geezer thing, but I know when I was a kid, the big thing that all us kids wanted to do is we wanted to accomplish something. We wanted to walk on the moon or go to space or build something better and faster. It was accomplishment. Today, the great desire is to be a victim. And the more of a victim you can paint yourself as, this is what's called intersectionalism. The more things that you can, the more victim boxes you can check, the more power you have. And even literally, possibly, the more money you might have. So it's a great thing to be a victim. And one of the ways to be a victim is to accuse someone else, even if falsely. Now, there was this wave of believe the victim. And uh, I, well, I believe in believing the victim, but not every accuser is a victim, Right? You know the difference. <laughs> not every accuser is a victim. And believe the accuser is not something that I biblically can agree with. Uh, listen to the accuser. Check out the accusation. But the Bible is just as much death on false accusations as it is on the actual committing of injustice. So it's the responsibility of the elders to check this out. And not just to say, oh, that's horrible. We'll swing into action immediately. But that's a horrible accusation. Let's check this out immediately take it seriously. That's what comes before this step. Now let's talk about what happens now. Jesus says to tell the church. If he won't listen to the two or three of you, tell the church. So what happens now? The whole church becomes involved. The whole church is informed. And the whole church as one, all the members of the church who've agreed that they are a church and that they're under the discipline and direction of the church, the church as one calls this brother or this sister to repent. They unite as a church and individually, as they're able to, they call this person to repent. Again, here's some notes from our Constitution. The elders shall inform the church and the congregation thereof at a regularly scheduled worship service in order that the church may call the erring individual to repentance. So it has been done as privately as it possibly can. One person then two or three persons, but the, the individual has not repented. So now, now it's a time to take it to the church. And the church, each church deals with this. Now, as you read the sections about discipline, no church has authority over another church. Churches are autonomous in this. Apostles, when there were apostles, are over the churches. But each church itself needs to deal with the problems in its own assembly. Other churches don't deal with the problems of other assemblies. So the church itself unites. Again, this is the point of, me of membership, to agree that we are united together. We are this church. We're under the discipline and the authority of the leadership of this church. And so this church unites in a witness against this brother or sister that he needs to repent of this sin. Uh, second note from our Constitution, very important. Such members cannot avoid the disciplinary process by resigning their membership. So I've read of people doing just that. Well, then I'll tell you what, I just resigned. Yes, but when you, when you took a covenant to be a member of this church, you submitted yourself to the discipline of this church, and that doesn't just mean when you agree with it or when it's convenient for you. <clears throat> or else it wouldn't be discipline, would it? And it wouldn't be this kind of care that Jesus says we all need 
wouldn't. So there's no resigning the membership to, to curtail the process. Uh, you join with the consent of the church. You leave with the consent of the church in this way. So uh, you can't just resign out of it. This is part of the care Jesus designs. And thirdly, the Constitution says, the members of this church and all other professing Christians who regularly attend or fellowship with this church agree that there shall be no appeal to any court because of the dismissal or because of any stage of church discipline, including the public statements to the congregation at the third or fourth stages. And the Constitution cites 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul expresses horror at the thought that Christians are taking other Christians to court, that they're suing themselves, they're, they're suing each other before unbelieving judges and saying, well, we're not able to resolve this in our church. And Paul, Paul just says, well, you, you should rather suffer wrong. Uh, aren't there people within you who can deal with this? It's the business of the church. And so our Constitution says, you, you don't like the discipline of the church, uh, going to a court is not an option. We're, we agree going in that it will not be settled in a, in a secular court, but in the context of this local church. So that's how. How long is this process? Well, I remind you, as I've said before, you need wisdom here. Remember 1, Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where three different commands about three kinds of people are given. Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Well, not everybody needs the same treatment. He speaks of the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak, and, is, and gives a different approach to each person. You don't just stand over a weak, struggling person who's trying hard and failing and, and just shout orders and reproaches at that person. It's a sensitive, wise, person-to-person -person thing. So, this thing that we are confronting, uh, this sin that we're confronting a brother or sister about, is he struggling to repent of it? Is he trying to make it right? Is he weak? And, and failing, but still struggling and seeking the grace of God and taking time to work it through. Not, you know, of course, all of us are just like this, right? I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> I'd have worried about you if you hadn't laughed. As all of us, we see something wrong in our life and we just go, oh, and that we're all better, right? We just grow. Oh, I need to grow there. Bam, I've grown. You know, it doesn't work that way. And so, if a brother is struggling but trying, is accepting the rebuke, is, is, is seeing it as sin and dealing with it as such truly, well, then that might be a, a lengthier process with patience and grace and all the help that the church can give to such a person. But again, there's the person who proudly says, it's none of your business. What I do with my private life is none of your business. Well, wrong. But in these cases, wrong but just hardly and proudly rejects, or again, the person who puts on a show of trying but is not really trying. These are different situations, and so I can't say, well, there should be, you know, 147 hours and three minutes after you give the first, uh, the first confrontation. It will vary from situation to situation. It takes wisdom, and thankfully God promises to give us his wisdom. But it would be good to agree on a, on a deadline and not have it just be all the way open-ended, depending on the situation. Is it, is it not somebody admits it's sin and is going to deal with it? Okay, so what progress can we expect by this stage and by this stage and by this stage? That's, that's wisdom. These are specific ways of working out what Jesus says to do. 
But why is it so important to do this? Why, why does Jesus make a big deal about this? If anyone thinks, why is Pastor Dan making a big deal about this? Well, it's because Jesus is making a big deal about this, and my job is to make a big deal about what Jesus makes a big deal about. So why does he? Well, because it's important for the church's obligation to the individual, and it's important for the church's obligation to the church. Just like this chapter talks about, right? This chapter talks about, Jesus has just talked about people who cause stumbling blocks to others, who are stumbling blocks to others. Well, that's the concern for the church of, uh, as a whole. But at the same time, Jesus also says, don't despise one of these little ones. And then tells the story about the guy with a hundred sheep who goes after the one that strays. So both the one and the whole congregation are both God's concern. And at no point should either be sacrificed for the other. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, I just remind you, not for the first time, this church is boasting, these Corinthians, they're proud of themselves about how gracious they are. Because see, they've got this guy who lives with his mother's wife and they all love him and accept him because they're one big gracious happy family and Paul is going no 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 that's not what grace is and he says your boasting's not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump so both the individual and the congregation are equally God's concern and these steps are designed by God to address both so what's the reward for being faithful in this step as a church confronting this person? Well, let me paint this two ways and use the letters Jesus wrote to the churches. What letters are those? You know, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he writes. He writes seven letters to the angels of seven churches. And to just skip all of the work of interpretation, I think angel means the pastor of these seven churches. The messenger is what angel means. It really is hard to make sense out of it if he's writing to an angel and telling an angel to repent. But he's, but he's writing to the pastors of these churches. And one of them is to Pergamum in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. And we're looking first at the bad side of failing to do this. What does Jesus think of a church that fails to do this? And he says to Pergamum, after giving them some praise, in Revelation 2, 14 and 15, he says, but I have a few things against you. What? That you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Same thing he warns about in Matthew 18. You're, they're letting that be in their congregation. To eat things sacrificed to idols and commute sexual immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So these are stumbling blocks, as Jesus warns about in Matthew 18, and they're tolerating it instead of confronting it, and if need be, expelling it. And then another on the wrong side is Thyatira, Revelation 2.20. He says to them, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality. And so, well, they are not doing what Jesus said. They're not confronting this sin, and they're not showing that person the door if he or she won't repent. But now there's also the good side in these letters. So, for instance, in his letter to the Ephesians, He's going to reprove them for their uh, flagging love, 
But he says this in verse 2, Revelation 2, 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So Jesus is very pleased with them that they applied discernment to people within their group who said that they were apostles, but were not in fact apostles. And they exposed them as false. Jesus likes that. That's doing what he said in Matthew 18. Again, speaking to Pergamum, Revelation 2.6. Revelation 2.6, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they took opposition to this false teaching that was causing stumbling blocks in their midst. Jesus likes that. So what's the reward? The knowledge that if we don't do this, we displease Jesus, whose church, after all, it is. Amen? But if we do do it, hard as it is, heartbreaking as it is, enraging as it is to the fleshly, we please Jesus. And after all, what is our imperative? What's our aim? What's our highest good? It's to please Jesus. Now the next step, step four, the step of excommunication as we call it. Roman numeral two, or you call it disfellowshipping. We're excluding, but we're calling it excommunication, which just before we go on, that means to exclude somebody from communion. And that is one of the things that this comes to. But excommunication, what's the problem? And if even to the church does he refuse to listen. I I translated that very literally to show Jesus' stress. So obviously Jesus, obviously Jesus' assumption is that we'll join a church and in so doing put ourselves under the discipline and leadership of that church. But in this situation, though we've done that, though we've said, I, I put myself under the leadership and discipline of this church, it gives a little leadership and some discipline, and we say, no, no, no. I'm having no part with that. So Jesus stresses, even the church, even the church that you have made yourself part of, even the church that I've appointed for this role, even the church, they will not listen. So to him, that's the big thing. So I ask, and will answer, the question, why should he listen to the church? Why should he listen to the church? Some of the answers, most of the answers really pretty simple if you think about it. Here's a first reason why he should listen to this church, this sinning brother or sister. <clears throat> because the confrontation has been by command and concerning sin. Now, what do I mean when I say it's been by command and concerning sin? Well, simply put, why am I doing this? I could certainly say in all sincerity in my part, not because I enjoy it, (laughs) not because it's fun for me. Why am I doing it? Just one reason why I'm doing it. Why am I doing it? Because Jesus said to. Now, there is no way to be a faithful church of Christ without following the word of Christ. And this is as much the word of Christ as any other word of Christ. So it's by command. I do this in Jesus' name. I don't do this because you've finally irritated me so much I can't bear it anymore. It's not that. I do it because Jesus has called me to this. We do this as a church because Jesus has called us to this. It's by command, and it's concerning sin. It's not concerning a matter of personal, private judgment. Well, this is my teaching, and and I really think you shouldn't uh, go away from my my teaching. This This is the word of God, and you mustn't 
call yourself a believer, but walk in proud rebellion against the Word of God. That's why I say this is one of these, this is a big, plain, clear issue of Scripture that we're talking about. So, uh, first of all then, because this confrontation has been by command and concerning sin. Not differences of judgment, but sin. Secondly, because the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And as an unbeliever has truthfully said and accurately said, well, he said facts don't care about your feelings. Truth also doesn't care about our feelings, whether we like it or not. God's truth is God's truth. And as a race, we don't like it till he converts us by grace. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, but in case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's our calling to be the bulwark of the truth for Timothy 3.15. And so the truth, what is the truth? Well, it's the gospel you say, amen, we need to preach the gospel. Well, it's the truth about God. Amen. We treat what the Bible says about God. Only one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. But the truth is also, don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother and so forth. That's also the truth. And the church doesn't get to pick and choose what parts of the truth we're the pillar and bulwark of, right? We're either all in or we're all out or on our way out. And so this is part of that truth. And when the, when the church stands before someone who's walked off, who's strayed and is in sin, and the church bears witness as a church that this is not the way of God, you must repent, you must humble yourself, seek God's forgiveness and get back in His way, it's speaking the truth, which is our calling. It is our charge. It's our commission. And that's just as much a part of it as any other. And this is why we join a church. Because we join it because we've concluded that it can be trusted to be a pillwark. A, a pillar, a pillwark. Should that be a word? <laughs> but it isn't. A pillar and bulwark of the truth to me. When I take my eye off the ball. When I walk into darkness. When I stray. Will it be a pillar and bulwark of the truth to me? Jesus says, I need that. The proud person says, I don't. But we confess we do. And this is a place where the church fills that function towards us. And so I say, in these cases we're talking about, the church speaks with God's authority. We'll be reminded of that in verses 18 through 20. What you bind will have been bound in heaven. What you loose will have been loosed in heaven. You seek the Father on this, He'll give it to you. And when you do this that I'm telling you to do, I'm with you. So we speak with God's own authority. Uh, I note in Revelation 3.19, Jesus is rebuking the Laodicean church, you all know. And He says this in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. So Jesus' love is not the shapeless, formless, gaseous love the, the world would like to think it is that just accepts anything we want to do is just fine and promises he has our back no matter what. That's not Jesus' love. My love, he says, is shown when I reprove and discipline. And here's a little interesting fact. At no extra charge. When he says reprove, it's the same verb that he calls us to do in Matthew eighteen fifteen. Your, your brother is, sins, then you go reprove him. 
And he says in Revelation 3.19, those I love, I reprove. And how does he reprove? By a little voice in our conscience? If he wants, but one of the ways he reproves is by the voice of the church. You hear me? You follow this? He calls us to do this, and that's him doing it when we do it in his name. This is exactly what he says in this section. I mean, it's exactly what he says in this section. So when I reprove according to the word of God, then I'm reproving in Jesus' name, and Jesus is reproving. When the church does this, it's Jesus reproving. So if I'm not a member of a church, then I've refused to name the church that I oblige myself to listen to. This is the whole thing. If he doesn't listen to the church, even to the church, he doesn't listen. When I become a member, I promise to listen. Well, if I haven't become a member, then I haven't promised to listen to anybody. And what Jesus says I need for my security, I've said, well, I don't think I do need it. And so I won't put myself there. But Jesus can't imagine that. He has us in a position where we're obliged to listen, but we don't. But if I don't, then I've removed myself from one of the things that Jesus says is how he keeps us and how he watches over us and how he guards us through that ministry of the church, of the local church. So this person who won't listen then to the voice of Jesus in his church is saying that he, he loves his sin more than he loves Jesus. And that's just it. He's been reached out to again and again and again. And each time he said, no, I love this more than I love Jesus. And so that brings us to this stage of excommunication. So again, I ask, what's the time frame? And again, I say it's a matter of wisdom that if, ti- if time is needed truly for this, before coming to this stage of excommunication. But the New Testament shows us that in some cases, the time frame may be very short. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is an example like this. Turn there with me. I mean, please get a Bible in your hand and open up to 1 Corinthians 5 so you can look at these words with me. And the more I study Matthew, the more I'm convinced that how how very much Paul knew the teachings of Jesus, and perhaps had even read Matthew. You just see so many reflections of what Jesus said and what Paul says. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, he says it is actually reported that there is, I'm going to pause there because it matters. The word reported is very literally just the verb heard. And the word actually can also mean everywhere. So let's put that in. Now he says it's actually reported. This just gives us a little more light if we were to say it is heard everywhere. So this is well known that there is sexually, sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife and you have become puffed up and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. So this is a case of something that is already very well known. It is true, and everyone knows it, and he's not even hiding it, and the church isn't even hiding it. It's just well known, but the church has taken the stance of, see how gracious, gracious and loving we are? 
that we embrace and welcome this man as just showing us another way to serve God. And he will bring this wonderful behavior into the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm saying little things people have said about various sins to explain why their churches embrace these sins and don't call for repentance from them. So the Corinthians were a, they were a leader. They were a pioneer church in that matter. Uh, nothing, nothing's new but error, and even that's not very new. So uh, you become puffed up. You haven't mourned. He should have been removed. So I've judged as though there. Look, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus. That is just a paraphrase of Matthew 18, 18 through 20. When you're gathered together in my name, I'm in your midst. And Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, because he says to do this with the power of Jesus, because he promises he'll be with you when you do this. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The destruction of his flesh, I take it, is that his fleshly desire that's pulled him off into the sin. His hope is that by putting him out of the family of God formally and resigning him back into the world, which is dominated by the God of this world, Satan, that in his experience of that, he will be brought to repentance and will be brought back into the uh, fellowship of the church. (coughs) Excuse me. But this is that excommunication done in the name of Jesus. It's well known. It's long past time to get to this stage, Paul says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So let me just make this point here. You might think, okay, I'm following you. You're saying that, yes, we're supposed to care about the individual and for the body, but sometimes we need to sacrifice the individual for the body. Do you see that? I I could really see somebody saying this because the individual is is a bit of leaven in this body and if he stays in the body, he's going to harm the body. Well, so so far so good. But what I want to say is that if they were to tolerate the individual, not only are they not serving the body well, they're not serving the individual well. Because as long as he thinks he's a Christian in good standing, is that good for him or is that bad for him? why that's bad for him. I agree with you. That's bad for him. Somebody comes up with this lovely looking golden glass full of liquid and says, I am so thirsty. I'm just going to chug this whole thing down. I say, what is it? He says, it's motor oil. I say, what? (laughs) And he says, well, but I want to. Surely if you were loving, you'd tell me to do what I want to do. Would it be loving to tell him chug away? It would not. And it's not loving for a church to say that one of the sins for which Paul says repeatedly, this is why the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, but you go right ahead, Bucky. You go right ahead and you're fine with God. Everything's okay. That is not loving. So this is the only way both to care for the individual and for the body. To tell him where he truly is and to witness to the truth, which I remind you is our calling, to this individual and say he's, that, that, that kind of life is the kind of life that people under the wrath of God live. And so, as Jesus says, you put him out. What does Jesus say? He says, if he, even to the church he refuses to listen, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector just using familiar, free, uh, familiar figures of speech for an outsider. Somebody who's not of your number. Who's not one of you. 
And so that's the case here in 1 Corinthians 5. Well known, everybody knows, no doubt about the facts of the case. And Paul says, long overdue to where you should remove this person. So he says, remove this person. He says, um, not to associate with him. In verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Another case I won't ask you to go there is, but do jot it down. Titus 3 verses 10 and 11. Paul says to Pastor Titus, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Well, again, first and second warning, he's a factious man. What does that mean? He's got his own little peculiar ideas that he's going around peddling. And these ideas are causing divisions and dissension among the church. They're causing division. And Paul says, warn him, warn him again. If he doesn't listen, show him the door. He can't be allowed to spread this in your midst. So let's, let's focus then in letter B on the practice. Jesus says, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. So in other words, treat him as the way he's chosen to live an unbeliever. Regard him as an unbeliever. What's the rationale? Why do this? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is a solemn testimony to this person. So in hopes that he will come to repentance and redemption, but that he is in no doubt that he can't embrace these sins and call himself a child of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So our solemn testimony to that person is you can't love your sin and God. You can't, you can't hold your sin and accept it in your, in your... And somebody says, well, but what about once saved, always saved? Oh, I, I totally believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does not teach once claiming to be saved, always saved. We're saved by Christ, not by a, a claim to know Christ. And so this person is showing by his life that he does not love the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the purity and testimony of the church, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 16. Again, he says, it is actually reported, or perhaps it is everywhere heard. Everybody, including unbelievers, know that you're tolerating what even Gentiles don't tolerate. Now, there's very few things today of which we could say that. <laughs> that, that list of things that could not even be mentioned in the pagan world is dwindling. I can think of one really a nasty thing, and they're working on that. I'm not being funny or cute. They're working on that. Child abuse, child molestation. Uh, what today is embraced 20 years ago was an object of horror. And today, this is still an object of horror in most places, but they are working hard on it. And one day, perhaps even that list is going to be empty. And there's always world-loving churches running after, wanting to be accepted and thought well of by the world that will make room for another sin, another sin, another thing that God says He sends people to hell for. And the church says Jesus saves people from. So, uh, but I digress a little bit. Um, the purity and testimony of the church your boasting is not good, he says. So is our message that Jesus saves from sin or is our message that Jesus makes sin safe? What does the church preach? Jesus saves us from sin or Jesus makes it safe to sin? He saves us from sin and this is part of that. So there's the rationale. 
What about the specifics? So what, what does it mean to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? Well, his membership in the church is canceled publicly. He's no longer a member of the church. And he's barred from taking communion. He's told that he's not, he's not to come to the Lord's Supper. He's not to partake because he's not a believer. He doesn't partake of Christ. He's not to partake of the, the communion with Christ. And relationships are changed. Let me give you a couple of verses and read them to passages. Uh, there are many, actually, but I'm just going to hit a couple. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14 and 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14 and 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who walks in an unruly manner, and not according to the tradition they receive from us. So again, not pagans, but people who claim to be Christians but live like pagans. 14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this letter, take special note of that person to not associate with him. Very literally, the verb is don't get mixed up with him. And that's a good, I, I, I prefer that rendering because it, it shows us that the idea is that you're not to be like, don't put yourself in a blender with him so that you are indistinguishable from him. That he's embracing a sin you've repented of. And don't get mixed up in that way with him. So it doesn't mean you can't talk to him, you can't, you can't spend time with him, but when you talk, you talk about his need to repent. You talk about his sin. You don't talk like everything's fine. You don't say, well, let's pray together. Why don't you lead us in prayer? He doesn't have the right to. He's given that up by embracing his sin. And yet do not regard him as an enemy. You're not out to destroy him, but admonish him as a brother. Call him to repentance. Come back into the family that he has by his behavior excluded himself from. 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 11 is the other one that I'll share of, of many. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with, and there's the same word, don't get mixed up with, sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies, but now I'm writing you not to associate with any so-called brother. Now he says, I'm not saying don't, don't get together with any sinners because then you'd have to leave the world. But he says, so-called brother. If he is a sexually immoral person or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, not to pretend everything's fine and you're on the same footing. You're not, it's not. Call him to repent. So relationships are changed. That's the practice, in short, of church excommunication. So what assurance do we have to do such a bold and unpopular and uncongenial thing, such a thing that, that would shock the world if the church started doing it with real consistence? Well, the assurance, again, is verse 18, Christ has given the church his authority in these matters. Verse 18, that's number one in your outline. Christ has given the church his authority, the authority to do this in these matters. Amen, I say to you, as many things as you bind on the earth will have been bound in heaven, and as many things as you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And I remind you that this is in the context of what we've been studying. Not, not just anything the church wants to do. Anything you do, God will rubber stamp it. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, when you do what I've been telling you to do in this matter about sin, which I define in my word, you're doing what I told you to do, then what you do will reflect what heaven has done. 
You tell somebody he's not a part of, he can't walk in adultery or whatever and, and be a part of Christ's uh, unrepentant adultery and be a part of Christ's church, you're just doing what God has said. You're, you're binding what's already been bound in heaven. And when somebody repents and, and, and forsakes his sin, then you're loosing what has already been loosed in heaven. So this is why ignoring the church is such a high crime, because the church speaks with Christ's voice and with his authority in these matters. But with that authority comes a weighty responsibility. We've been told to do this. If I say I don't want to because I'm so gracious, is that, this, no, this makes my mind flash in the guy with the one talent. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, I know how hard you were, so I just hid this talent in the ground. Here's your talent again, he says. And does his master say, great job. I appreciate your wisdom. What does he say? You wicked, lazy slave. We don't want to be that person. We don't want to hear that. So this authority is given for us. It's a responsibility. With great authority comes great responsibility. I heard that somewhere. Christ has given his church the authority to do this. Secondly, the Father will give his church the guidance that it needs. Verse 19 Moreover, I say to you that if two of you upon earth agree concerning... Why does he say two? Well, this is me and the witness I take. Upon earth agree concerning any matter that they may ask, it will be brought about for them from my Father who is in the heavens. So even at that stage, how much more when it comes to the whole church acting? I remind you that when he says matter, he uses a Greek word that is also used of court cases. I'd probably translate any issue because this is just not anything, but this is the sort of thing we're talking about, an issue where a brother or sister is in sin. And when two of you are in agreement on this, on the authority of God's word, then he says, ask of the Father and he'll give it to you. Why? Because this is his work I'm doing. I'm doing what he wants done. I'm acting on his behalf. Who is it that Jesus portrays as the sheep owner who has a hundred sheep and goes after the straying one. It's the Father. It's not the will of your Father who is in the heavens that one of these little ones perish. So when I, in obedience to what the Father has said through the Son, when I do these things, I'm doing the work of God. And I ask God to get involved in this work. He's, he's altogether perfectly happy to do that because I'm doing His work at His charge. Do you see? Yes? Third, Christ will grant his church his presence. Christ will grant his church his presence when we do this. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in respect to my own name, so there's me plus the witness or two, and if that, then how much more the whole church doing this faithfully? where two or three are to gather together in respect to my own name. The same thing Paul says, different, slightly different words. In the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus, he says, that's 1 Corinthians 5, he says, gathered together in respect to my own name, there I am in their midst. 
So what am I gathered together to do in respect to his name? What are we gathered to do together? What are we gathered together to do in respect to his name? We're gathered together to witness to this person to repent. And then if need be to tell this person that he's no longer a member of the church, no longer welcome to the Lord's table under the judgment of God. Please repent for your own soul's good in the name of God. Repent. And he says, when you do that, I'm in your midst. You are, you are saying it as if I were saying it. I'm right there with you saying amen to you saying amen to what I told you to say. You see? Jesus is involved in this. So you see, this whole package and this whole deal and church discipline is crucial to the Lord Jesus. He took time before there even was a church to tell us what to do in situations like this once the church exists. And so, theologian uh, J.L. Dagg, D-A-G-G, back in 1859 said something very brief and very true. He says, it has been remarked that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. And how sadly we can look around us if we know anything at all about church history and be forced to say a sad amen to that. I think of churches that were bright and shining witnesses in the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, more and more tolerated sin, more and more embraced sin, more and more gave pulpits to people who preached for sin, and now their lampstands are long gone. And we go through Europe and, and, and look at these gorgeous buildings that were built for the glory of God and don't have a, a syllable of the gospel preached in them anymore. Because discipline left the church, in part. Because the church so loved the world that it didn't want to offend it. And so, bit by bit by bit, changed into the world. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. So, I conclude very briefly with a point and two questions. All three of these very brief. Church membership is obviously something Jesus is very earnest about. That's the point. The questions are, are you? And shouldn't you be? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus Christ, for this truth. For we are called to be a pillar and bulwark of the truth. And... We can't do it without knowing the truth as Jesus teaches it. And these can be very difficult words, but Father, help us to be just as faithful to them as we seek to be to every other part of his teaching. And we pray for any here who don't know the Lord Jesus, that you will uh, draw, draw that person to see what a marvelous Savior Jesus is and to see how he came into the world to save sinners and how much they need to know him, that you will draw them to know him. And we pray that you bless us in our ministry of each other, that each of us will feel the burden of the need to be watching out for each other, out of love for others, and out of faithfulness to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.